Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Frank Romeo is an artist, an educator, and a Vietnam veteran who was diagnosed with 100% post-traumatic stress disorder. In March of this year, Frank walked over 750 miles across New York State to raise awareness about PTSD. During the walk, which was completed in June, Frank stayed in homeless shelters and visited veterans' facilities. He documented his encounters and is hoping to turn the footage into a documentary. Frank is our guest on this week's Cityscape. Frank Romeo, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. I appreciate it, George. Thank you for having me. So when did you first join the military? 1968. I served from 68 to 70. I was deployed and served uh, in Vietnam in 69. I was wounded in 69 and spent the next year or eight months, 10 months in a hospital. Did you voluntarily join yes, the military? Yes, the draft was coming at the time, and I knew I wasn't going to college, so it was just a matter of, they had a program then called Upping the Draft, where you move it up for two years. Most times when you enlist, it was four years. They did have a program, they needed men at the time. It was a war machine at the time. They needed men, so uh, they moved up the, my draft, and it was two years. Did you go in with buddies? Yes, I went in with a buddy. Uh, we spent most of the time together throughout our military career. It, it, was, uh, it was amazing that actually we fought together and we were in the same unit together in Vietnam. How much would you say you understood about war when you went into the military? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. I had no idea where Vietnam was, Southeast Asia. I had no concept of the reality of war. I was 18 years old. Like most of our young people today, they go into the military from high school without having a concept, and uh, it was I went in totally blind. So you grew up on Long Island? Correct. I grew up in Bayshore. I still am a Long Island resident. So what was it like then to end up in Vietnam when you're just an 18-year-old kid on Long Island? It was kind of, and I talk about this later on with... It was almost like suburbia meeting grass, a grass hut culture it, without an explanation. It was just all of a sudden, it was surreal. You went you went from the reality of growing up in a neighborhood in, in suburban New York City and, and going in and out of New York City, and then the next month you're in grass huts and you're you know living on the Mekong River and and living in the jungle it was it was surreal it was it was more that alone was traumatic enough just to kind of wrap your mind around what have i gotten myself into or what is this all about yeah and as you mentioned you nearly died in vietnam correct yes i was uh, i was ambushed i was alone i was separated uh, holding down a position, uh, the rest of the unit, we had no food or water for two days. The rest of the unit was getting resupplies, and I, I stayed behind, and I was ambushed by Viet Cong. How many times were you shot? I was shot several times. I was hit with a Claymore landmine. Um, I took quite a few shots. I still have a bullet in my in my spine, so um, it, I took quite a quite a beating. So after being shot, where did you wake up? Because I would imagine you were unconscious for a while. Correct. Uh, I slipped in and out of consciousness for a month. I wound up in a place called Camp Zama, Japan. Uh, Camp Zama was actually built by the Japanese before World War II. And when we occupied Japan, we took over Camp Zama. I believe we still have it today. So I woke up in Japan about a month later. And when did you go home? Shortly after that, I traveled to different stations throughout the world. I was too weak to travel because I was hit so many times. I wound up my main final resting place, final military hospital, was St. Albans in Queens, Queens, New York. What was the return like for you, the return to Bayshore? 
the return was um, I being away and living in the jungle. We were not privy to the change that America was going through. We were, I was not privy to uh, the political climate had changed. The country was divided, pro and anti-war. I was actually spit on when I left the hospital, still in uniform. And uh, younger people today and young veterans today don't realize that uh, we would not welcome home. Back in the 60s, the Vietnam veteran uh, really stood for everything America hated at the time. I actually was ashamed to be a veteran at the time. I, was a, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't tell anyone I was a veteran or wear my uniform. What types of services were afforded to you when you returned to Bayshore? There at were that no time? services. They, the, the government had its own problems dealing with the war. The government was falling apart. Um, you know, they had so many things going on: the Pentagon Papers and Watergate. So the the government had enough just to keep tab of itself. The Vietnam veteran, it was approximately eight million of us, uh, came home, and and there was the VA facility, but it was a new type of war. The war, uh, this was not two armies like World War II banging heads and the last man standing wins. This was the beginning of what I call psychological warfare. We're still using it today. The unknown enemy that we went through and uh, the, the beginning of really psychological warfare as I see it. And there were no outreach programs. There was no veterans facilities. Uh, basically, we were given drugs. Uh, basically, I was drugged for the next 10 years. I spent time in a psychiatric ward in, at Northport VA Hospital in East Northport. And um, I spent time there. And uh, I was basically given a, a large amount of drugs for almost a decade. What type of support system did you return to then? Did you have family support at least? I did have family. Unfortunately, I, I was showing signs of... of what we know now is PTSD. Uh, we didn't isolate it back then, and there were numerous, numerous names for it: depressive neurosis and shell shock, and just out and out depression. And what were those signs for you? Anger, rage. Uh, my family, my my younger brothers left the house. Uh, I, I couldn't control my temper. Sleepless nights, nightmares, flashbacks. It was the beginning of PTSD, and in fact, I I had it while I was still in the military. But uh, being discharged and then the VA really not understanding the soldier at the time or our government. And again, our government had its hands full with everything else. But there was no concept of who we were as soldiers. And there was no programs. Basically, it was easier just to drug us, give us medication. How did that affect your day-to-day to to be on drugs? It was difficult. It was difficult. you kind of became the live, the walking dead. Um, it was it was very difficult to assimilate back. I had a really hard time, and it just increased over time. I began having a family. It began to build. I had a hard time associating with people, holding down a job, and it, it became more and more difficult as the years went by. What did you do for work? I did a variety of menial jobs until finally uh, something, uh, the family had a catering business and, and, and I worked in catering, but, and I still, I was behind the scenes. I wouldn't, I didn't like people. I didn't talk to my best friend for 15 years. I didn't associate with with anyone else that wasn't a veteran. Again, I, I felt, and I find this today with, with so many younger veterans, they only associate with each other, that no one could possibly understand how I felt as a veteran. No one could understand my what was going on in my life, and my, my mental capacity was just deteriorating. When were you officially diagnosed with what we know today as PTSD? Well into the 90s. It, 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 now, what, what happened, 
during the 60s, soldiers like myself would go into the VA and the red flag would go up you know, constantly, day after day, same story. Anxiety, anger, rage, everything that I mentioned before. That continually went on. The red flag went up. Of course, there were no computers at the time. And that, that red flag went up for almost a decade in, in, into the 80s. And then finally someone uh, – there was an orderly in Chicago uh, – that re- connected the dots and realized there was a pattern. And then the government stepped in and they decided to do a research project on, on Vietnam veterans. It was called Vietnam War Syndrome at the time. And that took another 10 years. And so that brings us up to the 90s. Finally, in the, in the early 90s, the American Psychiatric Association stepped in and, and we have PTSD. They re-set uh, re- up boundaries for its diagnosis and treatment and then they, they renamed it post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's when I was diagnosed. So basically, all along, I was depressive neurosis, and I was depression, and then finally in the 90s, early 90s, the government just renamed my diagnosis as PTSD. Did it make you feel any different, any better to have that kind of diagnosis? It made sense to me. Finally, something made sense, as opposed to just being drugged for a decade, Finally, something I could wrap my mind around that made sense when when, when a, a person experiences a traumatic event. And and because, actually, it was the perfect storm, because of, of the political climate, the Vietnam veteran went underground for, for decades, it actually festered in us. And when it erupted, it, it kind of made sense to me. So mine surfaced, and then mine surfaced in a form of art. A lot of my friends committed suicide, but it, it, it festered in us and then surfaced. It didn't, it made me feel better that I could understand something. Finally, something made sense in my life after decades, after after two decades. And uh, finally, that's when my life kind of changed, took on a, a whole new aspect. In the form of art, you said, what kind of art were you creating to express your feelings? I was creating a, a PTSD artwork. I began painting incessantly, oil on canvas. Every piece of artwork had a story behind it. Most of it was trauma-based. I began to realize that, you know, this is this is who I am. It, it was an outlet for me. The movement of my hands on canvas kind of helped to get my stories out. And I relived all my painful experiences. And for the first time, I was actually, they actually came to the surface instead of, you know, pushing them down. So was art therapy recommended to you or did you no, just take it up? No, I just took it up one day. I just felt like started doodling and next thing I know I just went out and bought a canvas and, and oils and I just began to play with art and play with art and it began to just take on a life of its own and then when I realized what I was doing I, I searched out other veterans like myself I searched out other people uh, that were going through the same type of experiences and I started collecting art besides painting my own I started collecting and I I amassed a, a, a large collection of PTSD artwork. Your work has actually been featured at the Smithsonian, right? No, it's no? in a museum in, in a Chicago. museum in Chicago. Okay. Yes. It has been shown uh, in, um, in New York. Excuse me. In New York, it has traveled around the country, but it is part of a permanent collection in a museum in Chicago. How does that make you feel? Nice. It's nice. It's part of a learning experience. It's it's part of teaching other people about trauma and, uh, and how I worked through it as a soldier. I began, again, I began to collect, and uh, this collection, it, it finally dawned on me what I had done. I actually was documenting American history through art, 
and and then I realized that I was documenting PTSD, as we know it today. You were diagnosed with what's called 100% PTSD. So now what's the difference? Explain well, it's 100% PTSD-related because I have a bullet in my spine. So the government has, has a rating system. So if you lose a leg, it's X amount of percent, if, if you, you know, and, I, and they have it accordingly. So I had... Uh, 50% for the bullet and, and 80% for PTSD. And then they, well, if you add it all up, it's really 150%. But, of course, you can't have more than 100%. So they have a, a, a rating. And then that rating puts you into a category, and then they compensate you accordingly. What would you say are the biggest misconceptions when it comes to PTSD today? We know a lot more about it, of course, but still, what are the misconceptions? The misconceptions that it's going to go away. It, the misconceptions with all the treatment and outreach centers, uh, the misconception is, and, and when I talk to younger veterans today, and I do a lot of that and a lot of teaching, that it, you know, there's a cure, to me, it's part of us as human beings. It's a natural defense mechanism. It's how I see it. Uh, when you're traumatized, it's a natural reaction for your body. When when you have, uh, think of your grandmother or the death of a loved one, it brings tears to your eyes. That's a natural reaction. And I believe the individual could embrace it. I embraced my trauma. I, I learned to use it. I learned to turn a negative into a positive. And by embracing it, and you're able to move forward. And I advocate for education along these lines that I believe we, we need to touch base on education in reality-based type of teaching that uh, lay the foundation for people to understand it before it happens or, or just learn about it before it happens just to give them a fighting chance and, uh, and be able to embrace it. And how, how they embrace it and how they wrap their mind around it is how they're going to be able to move forward. Uh-huh. Have you been able to kick the drugs, or do you still have to take drugs? I still take medication at night for nightmares. I have reoccurring nightmares. I've had them for, since I was wounded, um, so every night I, I have the same dream. Is there anything in particular that you have to avoid in your life so as not to set yourself off? Uh, no, I've kind of I've kind of put it in a place. I know the triggers, and so I know I know what's going to trigger me, and and, um, and sometimes I'll avoid certain things. So there are certain things, but I, I really have a good handle on things, knowing that um, I, can, I can deal with it or I can, I can use a particular circumstance or a particular experience, and I try to use it as opposed to fight it. You recently embarked on a very long walk to draw attention to this issue. You stopped at homeless shelters. Talk to us about that walk yes. from where to where. I started in Niagara Falls in February when it was frozen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, it's uh, part of a learning experience. Students all over the country followed me on my blog, and I wrote daily stories on what it's like and how I felt being in a shelter. So I spent three and a half months on the road. I got back last week. And I've covered, I spanned New York State. So I started in Niagara Falls and walked to uh, uh, down to Long Island. And I spent um, at least half the nights in shelters. So I, I, I would say I spent a good 45 nights in homeless shelters with our homeless. I documented their stories. Um, I gave them a voice. I have hundreds of hours of footage, of video in the shelters. 
Um, I visited numerous uh, VA facilities, outreach centers. Everything was uh, Veterans R Us. So I, I went on this walk. I spoke at dozens of, of high schools about veterans' issues, and I documented everything. Yeah, a documentary, a video documentary is now in the works about It's this. in the works, yes. I, I need to raise funds. I need, to, I need people to help me uh, to, get, to get this message out. Um, I have footage that no one else has. This is the story of our veterans, uh, New York State veterans. And this is the story inside the shelters, inside outreach centers, inside therapy groups. And uh, this is the story of what I found in my, in my travels. And um, we're putting together a documentary, and, and we have literally hundreds, hundreds of hours of uh, video. That, um, so I'm on a fundraising cause. I, I need funds. I need people to help me to, uh, to get put this together. It's going to be an educational documentary that people can learn about the story of PTSD, about the evolution of PTSD as we know it today. And what I found, I've also connected the dots between the homeless and PTSD. Uh, I think uh, the stigma surrounding mental health in this country is not helping our veterans. They're not stepping forward saying, I have PTSD. So when, when I do a lecture, I introduce myself as having a mental illness, PTSD. And I believe we have to say these words out loud. I believe we have to say them so People can can understand that, you know, we we say the word cancer out loud, so we should be able to say mental illness out loud. But we sweep it under the rug for numerous reasons. And um, so I've connected the dots between the homeless and PTSD. Behind every homeless veteran, there's a a PTSD-laced story. And um, I've uncovered that, and I have footage of that, and so I need to get it out there. How difficult was it to start these conversations with these veterans in homeless shelters? How easy was it for them to open up to you, or was it easy because they knew you walked exactly. in their footsteps? Exactly. You know, I and, I and I walked to them. You know, so I walked. You know, I I put myself out there, and and I approached it. I'm not a clinician, and I, I approached it as one of them at their level. Some of them, I'm a hundred percent. And some of them are just struggling to get 10 or 20% with the VA, but they're homeless. But because they're a veteran, they're there. So, so they're struggling. So I've been, you know, where they are, you know. Any I, particular story stand out most for you of the people that you met along this journey? Yeah, yeah. His name was um, Francis Patrick John McManus. <laughs> and he was walking along the side of a road. He was homeless, and I was walking along the side of a road, so we shared an afternoon together just walking and talking, and he was collecting cans and bottles for a refund. And, um, and when he realized what I was doing, uh, advocating for our homeless veterans, he took out this raggedy old wallet, and he had two $1 bills, and he gave me one of them. Hmm. He gave me half of everything he had in the world, and I took it. And, and it meant more to him to take his dollar than it was for him to have lunch that day. So, you know, there are people out there like that that no one knows about. They're the forgotten people of our world. They're the forgotten homeless. They're, they're the people that, you know, they, they served, and, and they're out there struggling. And um, many of them are too proud because they want to do it. They still feel that they can do it. But many of them have come in, and they still won't say the words PTSD or I need help. There's that stigma, and we need to attack that stigma in this country. Did you have opportunity to talk with lawmakers, policymakers during this journey? I did. I did. I have, uh, I 
This walk has been in the works for three years, so I've broken down the walk into 25 individual counties, and I attacked each county. So I visited each county three times, and I spoke to every elected official in that county, every head veteran in that county, and, and every homeless shelter and outreach. So going into the walk, people knew I was coming. When I walked into Albany, I... I got asked to speak out on the Senate floor, and I addressed our General Assembly in Albany, our, our elected officials in New York State at the highest level. How sympathetic would you say their ear is? Uh, they they know. Um, I've called them, and they don't pick up the phone, and I keep calling, so they know I'm going to call back. <laughs> so finally, they, they answer the phone. They're on board. They They realize that, look, you know, something needs to be done. In my opinion... We can keep building out, uh, outreach centers. We can keep building homeless shelters. In my opinion, uh, I argue what we're doing is working. Uh, I believe we need to rethink our approach. I think we, we need to rethink our education, and we need to rethink how we're going to deal with this problem. If what we're doing is working, we wouldn't have 22 suicides a day. And I said that to them on a, on a Senate floor. 22 so. veteran suicides a day. Correct. I'm sorry. Yes, vet- 22 veterans a day commit suicide. And those are the guys that, that just put the gun to their head. We're not talking about the, the walking dead. We're not talking about the guys that are drugging and drinking themselves slowly to death. How important is it to educate the general public, young people today, about PTSD and what the military walks through in the process Correct. of uh, um, yeah. defending this country. Yes, it's so important. Uh, I've been I've been teaching 30 years ago when I came to terms with my trauma and I began my art. I began traveling around the country uh, talking to people, teaching PTSD before it was even popular. And, uh, you know, before there was a name on it and before, you know, people, everything's PTSD today. And I've been advocating for 30 years for, more reality-based education woven into our mainstream curriculum. And last year, for the first time, I had something passed. I had a new curriculum, the first one in the country, called The Experience of the American Soldier. And it was passed. It was. It's available to all 11th and 12th grade high school students going through American history, government, and social studies. And it was piloted by a school district on Long Island. It's based on my teachings. And I actually, when I got to Albany, I planned on Skyping in the piloting students, and we had we had them talking to our elected officials and our elected officials asking them questions. It's so important to lay the foundation for our future veterans. Uh, we can, we're spinning our wheels. Again, what we're doing is not working, and we need to rethink education. Uh, we re- need to rethink how we approach war, and we have to be honest. Right now, the students are that... When I lecture, the students I'm speaking to in high school, seniors, they're 18 years old. Well, we've been at war before they were conceived. And now we're asking them to go into the war and do horrific things. So uh, we, need to, we need to be honest with them, transparent. I believe we're just going to continue. Uh, every day America produces a host, uh, uh, more veterans with a host of new issues. And every day we're just spinning our wheels. And we can keep building more shelters and more outreach, but why don't we stop the bleeding? Why don't we focus on education before the fact and have this conversation about reality, about the realities of our country, about the realities of our military, and especially to those young people that are going in? 
What's in your curriculum? What are you teaching specifically? Specifically, it's not a specific curriculum. It's woven into uh, American history. Mm -hmm. So it starts at the Civil War and goes right up to today's war. So my concept is to spend a little less time on the battle and a little more time on the soldier that's in the battle. So we'll learn about the battle, only we'll give it a personal touch. Uh, it will it will lay the foundation for who we are as soldiers, who the American soldier is, what a veteran is. It'll give the, the student a sense of uh, country and sacrifice. And it starts at the American uh, Revolution. One example of a presentation I did, the students studied Civil War letters, and then they studied my letters, and they compared them, and basically said the same thing. I'm scared. I, I want to go home. I don't think I could do this. And so the same, the same concept. So, you know, why do we have in the American fighting men the propensity to put ourselves in harm's way? And administrations change, and, you know, policy changes, but the American soldier doesn't basically change. And why? Why is that? There are, you know, there are other reasons for going to war. Of course, World War II just had its own reason. But uh, since the Civil War, if you think about it, that's the last time we fought for our homeland. And since then, it's been an away game, and our team has been on the road. What's among the most common question you get from high schoolers? Is there a most common question? Yeah, they want to know what it's like to get shot. Of course, mm. you know, th- you know, then then, and and they want to know. A lot of times I ask the school to do prep work before I get there, you know, and, and let them know who I am and, and basically, you know, a little more reality and PTSD. We do get into serious questions uh, depending on, on the students I'm speaking to. You know, they, they get into um, God and country. They ask me about that. They ask me uh, if I did believe in God, do I believe in God after a war as opposed to before? So there's serious questions. The most common question is, of course, is killing people and getting shot. Everyone wants to know what that is like. And, of course, it's not a nice thing. What would you want to tell your younger self, that <laughs> teenager that was heading to Vietnam yeah. before you went? Yeah, heads up, huh? Yeah, mm. that's a good question. Um, I think I think I'd want to tell myself I probably would, knowing who I was at the time, and that's— and that's how I see the young people today is I question, you know, is, is my talking? Am I talking? Are you listening? And so would I have listened? I don't know if I would have listened. I certainly would have liked the opportunity to listen. I certainly would have liked someone to take me aside and say, hey, this might happen to you. And that didn't happen. It didn't happen when I got home. It didn't happen before I left. So I would have told myself as a young man, um, not to be so brash and, and, and arrogant because uh, that's that's what gets you killed. The documentary has a title, right? You already titled it? Yes, Walk With Frank, and I am Frank. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's about my journey. It's about a 50-year struggle with PTSD, and it's about the inception of PTSD as we know it today and, and uh, why I did what I did. It goes through introduces some of the people that I've met on my journey. It introduces the homeless veteran. It introduces the struggling PTSD veteran. It introduces uh, elected officials that care and some that uh, don't care. And it introduces a lot of people along the journey. And um, it's, it's, it's footage that no one else will see anywhere else. It's just an amazing... Uh, amount of footage that we've gotten in places that no one else has got. In VA hospitals, it's very, very hard to get cameras inside a government facility. We've done it twice, 
and and we've actually interviewed uh, veterans in VA hospitals. So um, I need help. I need help to get it going. I need help to get the message out there. If anyone is willing to help me in any way, you can reach me at walkwithfrank.org. Let me ask you this question, Frank. Today, would you say you still struggle with PTSD or you live with PTSD? I think I live with it. I think I've learned to coexist, cohabitat with uh, PTSD. Uh, It never goes away. And I still have my reoccurring nightmares. And um, so I know when I go to sleep that, you know, I know what to expect. So I I coexist. And uh, really, I don't want any young person to go through what I went through, ever to live through what I lived through without being prepared, or at least a heads up. It may not help. But, you know, we've done everything except pre-education when it comes to our military and our veterans. We, we've done everything. You know, we've, we give out tremendous amounts of money in pensions and outreach programs and VA medical health care. Not one penny goes to pre-education. We really need to refocus. And this new curriculum does that. This new curriculum talks about the realities of our country, the realities of our soldiers, and the realities of our veterans. And um, on my walk, I, I got to speak. I reached out to, before I left, we reached out to at least 75 different uh, high schools along the route. Two or three dozen took advantage of it. And on my walk, I stopped in and we talked. I gave a lecture and then we opened it up to Q&A and it was really good. They learned a lot. And now they're into the curriculum and they're actually tapping into it. And people, if you'd like to see the curriculum, go on my homepage on my website, walkwithfrank.org. And it's right on the home page. You can get into the curriculum. Any educators that are out there listening, you can get right into the curriculum. It's got hot links, and you can kind of get a concept of, of what we're doing. And uh, it's groundbreaking. It's the first one of its kind in the country, and we have it right here in New York State. Frank, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, George. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. And uh, please visit me at walkwithfrank.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Matty Bristow. And thank you so much for listening.